All right, now, last week, I finally got to share with you my little uh, article about the Galileans and how the people of that region were probably the most dedicated ones in terms of their faith in God, the relationship with God, and so forth. And all of the apostles except for Judas, well, actually Judas never made it to apostleship, but all the 12 disciples were from the region of Galilee except for Judas. Jesus was from Nazareth, which was considered part of the Galilee district, even though it was about 12 miles east or west of the Sea of Galilee. But today, before we get into this passage uh, of John chapter 3, Jesus is going to have an encounter with a man who was a part of the, uh, uh, the sect known as the Pharisees, Nicodemus. And... Um, Although we read about them all the time in the Gospels, I've never actually gone in depth as to really who they were or what they were all about. And so I wanted to read you this article, again, regarding the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? Here we go. The Pharisees formed the largest and most influential religious political party in the New Testament times. They are consistently depicted in the Gospels as antagonists or opponents of Jesus Christ and the early Christians. The term Pharisee means separated one. And so the Pharisees separated themselves from society to study and teach the law. But they also separated themselves from the common people because they considered them religiously unclean. Remember how they would criticized Jesus, as they said, for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Some Pharisees were also scribes, but not all scribes were Pharisees. So the Pharisees probably got their start under the Maccabees, if you remember the story about Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabean Revolt, 160 B.C., the Pharisees emerged as a scholarly class dedicated to the teaching of both the written and the oral law. So the written law, but also the interpretation of the law. And you probably know this, but the, the Pharisees were known for their legalism, their extremism. And that's where the oral law came in, where they would interpret the written law, like we see in many churches today coming up with a set of man-made rules and regulations basing, based upon certain interpretations of certain scriptures and so forth. But uh, they were dedicated to the teaching of both the written and oral law and stressing the internal side of Judaism. <clears throat> You've heard of Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, and he, he, he claimed that... Um, at their peak, there were about 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. He described the Pharisees as maintaining a simple lifestyle. I think he gives them a rather uh, too glowing of a, of a report, but he says they were simple lifestyle, affectionate, harmonious in their dealings with others, respectful of elders, and influential throughout Israel. But, you know, they didn't come off that way in the Gospels. Middle-class businessmen and trade workers, the Pharisees started and controlled the synagogues, those Jewish meeting places that served for both local worship and education. 
They also put great importance on oral tradition, again, the oral uh, interpretations of the law, making it equal to the laws written in the Old Testament. And again, we see that today with many groups where, um, for example, this Jesus Calling book. Some people elevate that to the same level as Scripture, which is really not good at all. I'm tempted to say blasphemous, but that's what they did. The Pharisees did. They took their oral traditions and elevated them to a level equal to the Word of God. And that's why Jesus accused them of placing burdens on other people that they themselves could not even carry. The Pharisees were extremely accurate and detail-oriented in all matters pertaining to the law of Moses. While they were sound in their professions and creeds, their system of religion was more about outward form than genuine faith. Among the Pharisees' beliefs were were life after death, the resurrection of the body, the importance of keeping rituals, and the need to convert Gentiles. Because they taught that the way to God was by obeying the law, the Pharisees gradually changed Judaism from a religion of sacrifice to one of keeping the commandments. Again, legalism, salvation by good works. Animal sacrifices still continued in Jerusalem temple until it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., but Pharisees promoted works over sacrifice. In the New Testament, the Pharisees constantly appear to be threatened by Jesus. The Gospels often portray them as arrogant, although they were generally respected by the masses because of their piety. Nevertheless, Jesus saw through the Pharisees. He scolded them for the unreasonable burden they placed on the common people. In a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees found in Matthew 23 and Luke 11, Jesus called them hypocrites and exposed their sins. He compared the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are filled with dead men's bones and uncleanness. Matthew 23, 13, and then 27 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The Pharisees could not bear the truth of Christ's teachings, and they sought to destroy his influence among the people. And finally, before we get into the text this morning, most of the time the Pharisees were at odds with the Sadducees. They were really enemies. Uh, the Sadducees being that elite class, the wealthy, the high priests, so forth, another Jewish sect. But the two parties joined forces. What is it? The uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend? They joined forces to conspire against Jesus. They voted together in the Sanhedrin to demand his death, then saw that the Romans carried it out. Neither group could believe that in a Messiah who would sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. So that's some background, uh, more than we've covered in the past, on who the Pharisees were as we study this story today where Jesus has a direct encounter with a member of that sect, the Pharisees. 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of John chapter 3, if you'd like to read along with me. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a, a man, a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time now in your word. We pray that you would uh, cause your Holy Spirit to give us insight, understanding, and even application for our own lives as we study this passage together, Lord. Help us to dig deep and really gain a, a, a greater and truer understanding of what's happening here between Jesus and Nicodemus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was a man of the Pharisees. I read the printout to you. So you know his background. He's named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a biblical boy's name of Greek origin, actually, inspired by the name Nicodemus. And it translates to victory of the people. And he was a ruler of the Jews. So not only some Pharisees were also members of the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Seventy, that were basically the rulers of Israel under Roman rule, of course. So he was also a member of the Sanhedrin because he was a ruler of the Jews, not just a Pharisee. Uh, the word Sanhedrin comes from the Greek term synedrion, and it literally means sitting together. It means a council. The Sanhedrin was both a Jewish judicial and administrative body, the Sanhedrin was composed of local elites, including members of the high priestly family, scribes, who were considered to be the religious experts, the theologians of their day, if you will, and lay elders. The number 70, probably patterned after the 70 elders of Israel that the Lord established under Moses, Numbers 11:16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, remember Moses was struggling, he's having to uh, govern about two million people as they left Egypt and began to wander in the desert for 40 years and he was getting pretty burned out and his uh, father-in-law Jethro um, speaking by inspiration of the Lord went to him and suggested this the Lord therefore said to Moses gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and so they would be, these would be men that the people already recognized as leaders amongst their various tribes. It's been said um, 
that we're, we, God ordains, and we just recognize that. You know, you're only an elder if you eld. I've heard it said. You're only a deacon if you deek. You're only a pastor if you pastor. I've, I've met people through the years, they'll come and visit the church, and they'll hand me their little business card afterwards, and it says, you know, John, John Jones, prophet, you know, Jim Bob, whatever, um, evangelist, so forth. They have a little business card with their title on it. It's been a sad thing over the years, but I've seen many times people are doing really well in serving the Lord until you give them a title. And then they go south. So let's not worry about the titles. Let's just, if you're an elder, if you're elder, you're a deacon, if you deek. <laughs> you're a pastor, if you pastor. But it says, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And so Moses did just that. And it alleviated a lot of his problems, a lot of his stress. And so we believe the Sanhedrin was patterned after this original group that served under Moses. So here we have Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's also apparently a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, we know he is. Later on, he tries to take a stand for Jesus against all of their persecution. And in the Gospels, we don't see that word Sanhedrin. They're called the Council of the Elders. John 3, 2, this man came to Jesus by night. And so this is where we get the term Nick at night. Now, apparently, he went under cover of darkness because he didn't want his associates to know he was seeking out or interested in Jesus. But let me give you some thoughts from um, um, Albert Barnes, a Bible commentator. He says, it is not mentioned why he came by night. It might have been that being a member of the Sanhedrin, he was engaged all the day, in other words, busy. Or it may have been because the Lord Jesus was occupied all the day in teaching publicly and in working miracles and there was no opportunity for conversing with him as freely as he desired. Yeah, Jesus was constantly surrounded by people flocking to him to hear him teach, but probably even more so just seeking after his miracles, you know how people are. Or it may have been, says Barnes, that he was afraid of the ridicule and contempt of those in power and fearful that it might involve him in danger if publicly known. We know that multiple occasions they tried to kill Jesus, so he wasn't the most uh, safe person to be around. Or it may have been that he was afraid that if it were publicly known that he was disposed to favor the Lord Jesus, it might provoke more opposition against him and endanger his life. So here he comes at night, Nick at night, for whatever reason, and said to him, Rabbi, again, this is a title of respect, means my master or teacher. It was a title of respect given to Jewish doctors, something like our doctor of divinity or a teacher of divine things, if you will. So it is a, it, it is a, a way of addressing Jesus honorably, calling him Rabbi, teacher, master. And then he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who's we? 
would be him and those among his colleagues who actually recognized the validity of Jesus' ministry and teachings, not the view of the majority by any means. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, unlike his hard-hearted, legalistic, prideful, stubborn associates, Nicodemus knew that Jesus' miracles confirmed that he was indeed sent by God. But here's the thing. I've, I've observed this over the years myself, as well as seeing it in the scriptures. For those who refuse to believe, how many of you here today realize and recognize that belief is a choice? Yes. So for those who refuse, if someone says, I, I can't believe that, I don't really accept that. You have a choice. And as we've talked about so many times, it's important to ask God to impart faith and repentance to those who need to be converted, born again. God imparts the faith. If you're someone who's uncertain about your relationship with God, where you stand with God, simply ask him, Lord, strengthen my faith. Give me the faith that I need to trust you. That's a prayer that he will never deny. But for those who refuse to believe, no amount of miracles will ever convince them. Do you know that? I mean, we see it in the Gospels. Jesus was performing miracles on a regular basis. And what did the Pharisees and the Sadducees do? Show us something else. Show us something else. And I've seen God do miraculous things in people's lives only for them to turn and walk away. You know, um, I had a, a degree of familiarity and involvement with a group for a period of time that was teaching what they called power evangelism. And the theory behind what they were teaching was that we can go out into the world and we can get people saved, bring them to Jesus Christ by simply showing them the miraculous well, first of all, you just can't conjure up the miraculous. God does his miracles when he wants to, how he wants to, and why he wants to. But there, there are certain groups out there that give you the impression that, oh yeah, you should be able to, if you have enough faith, you can go out and perform miracles on a regular basis. Well, first of all, we don't perform them. God does. And secondarily, like I said, I've seen so many people experience God's miracles firsthand, saving their lives, situations where they should be dead, and God miraculously delivers them. But do they commit their lives to Him and follow after Him? No. They go on their merry way. And so, for those who refuse to believe, no amount of miracles will force them to believe. And by the way, the greatest miracle of all is the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, the new birth, which we're going to look at in just a moment. That's the greatest miracle. Because no matter how many times this body gets healed, it's still going to die. It's all about eternity. It's all about where you're going to go when this life is over. 
It's all about getting a new, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, perfect body, which I definitely need and can't wait to get. The older we get, the more you become aware of that. Remember Pharaoh? How many miracles did he witness? Did he change? He kept hardening his heart. Now, the, the, in Exodus, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but God hardens the hearts of those who harden their own hearts. If, heart, if Pharaoh would have softened his heart and opened up to God's will for the children of Israel to let them go, everything would have been fine. He witnessed miracle after miracle. Now, they were negative miracles. Each one did damage to some portion of the Egyptian landscape, including the death of the firstborn, remember? But they, it was, those were miraculous events, but it, Pharaoh's heart never changed. So if there's anyone here today or anybody watching online that's got this thought in their mind, well, if God would just show me a miracle, I would believe. I'm telling you right now, that ain't the way to go. The miracle already happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day. There's your miracle. Okay. Verse 3. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. Checking something here real quick. So Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly. See, Jesus didn't mess around. You know, nothing about Jesus was, you know, um, ambiguous or, you know, uh, wordplay, if you will. Like I call some of these uh, preachers out there, they, they employ, or politicians in particular, verbal gymnastics. None of that with Jesus. Most assuredly, I say to you, what Jesus is putting forth now to Nicodemus is an undeniable, non-negotiable spiritual truth. Do you realize, I think you do, there are non-negotiable, undeniable spiritual truths, right? The virgin birth, the perfect sinless life of Christ here on earth, his death on the cross, his resurrection. There are a number of non-negotiable, undeniable truths that nobody can change or alter, however many people do try to do that, don't they? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or, even more accurately translated, from above. Unless one is born from above. Our first birth is from down here, right? Well, Jesus said you must be born from above. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus of a second birth, a spiritual birth. And Jesus says unless this happens, he cannot see that person cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And to see the kingdom of God is to enter in to it and become a part of it, to become a true child of God. Jesus said if you want to become a part of God's forever family, then you have to be born again. I remember back in the Jimmy Carter era, Jimmy was a Baptist, taught Sunday school, remember him? He was briefly president. Probably too long, but... <laughs> but he, you know, he proclaimed the faith in Christ in his Playboy interview. Do you remember that? Yeah. But anyway, Jimmy talked about the fact that he was a born-again Christian. And even though that was uh, several, almost a decade after the Jesus movement happened, it was at the tail end of the Jesus movement, the term born again um, was still controversial in, in, many, in many circles. And I remember that controversy arising and some people saying, well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-againers. Because I guess the born-againer was like the Jesus freak, the extreme, you know, the radical, the, you know. Um, and so people were trying to draw a distinction between a born-again Christian and a non-born-again Christian. I'm sorry, but that, that, that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot participate in it. You can't become a part of it. I mean, we live in a, in a duality as believers. We see the world around us, and it is a mirror or reflection of the unseen kingdom of darkness ruled over by the prince of this world, Satan, right? But in actuality, those who have not been born again, they can't see either side because they're blind. The people walking in the darkness, they don't realize that all around them is this unseen kingdom of the prince of darkness, the evil one. They see the manifestations of it. Some people agree with those manifestations. Some people don't. But they don't have any idea why it's happening, where it's coming from. But you and I as believers, we get to see the whole picture. If we're willing to. You think there are some Christians that hide their heads in the sand? I know there are. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to acknowledge it. They just want to pretend it's not there and tiptoe through the tulips with Jesus Christ. But we see the whole picture. We see the kingdom of God by the Spirit of God living in us through the truth of His Word. But we also see that other kingdom. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. <clears throat> Nicodemus comes back. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? And Nicodemus was probably older, one of the elders, statesmen's, statesman of Israel, member of the Sanhedrin, Pharisee. 
He said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I'm sorry, Nick, but that's a really weird, shallow question coming from someone who's supposed to be a spiritual leader. The concept of a second spiritual birth was totally foreign to this, quote, religious leader. And again, there are a lot of religious leaders today that are totally foreign to the idea of being born again. They know all about religion, ritual, just like the Pharisees. They know all about attempting to achieve heaven through good works. But the idea of being born again, oh, I'm not one of those. Ew, yuck. Well, Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So most assuredly, here it is again, Jesus wants Nicodemus to know these are undeniable, non-negotiable spiritual truths. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we talked about this water part last week. Let's go back over it quickly. We discussed the different beliefs about the water into wine, but here we have it again, Jesus bringing up water. There are three, we talked about the three different perspectives. One, physical birth. That's where I land, as does Pastor Chuck Smith, so I think I'm in good company. Two, water baptism, and three, the washing of water by the word, Ephesians 5.26. I believe it does refer to physical birth, and I'll show you why in the next verse. But again, my mentor, Pastor Chuck Smith, holds that same position, or held it here on earth, and I'm sure he's still holding it in heaven. But we have two things here, born of water and the Spirit. So this is where spiritual birth comes in. And then he goes on in verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we have, see, the, the correlation. Physical birth. What happens when it's about time for the baby to be born? The water breaks, right? Mommy has a little accident. Oops, my water broke. That's an indicator that the baby's coming. Physical birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice in this verse, at least in my Bible, it should be in yours too, the first spirit has a big S, as in Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. The little spirit has a small S for the spirit of man, which must be regenerated. That which is born of the Holy Spirit is a regenerated human spirit. Now, every human being is born with a spirit. We're created in God's image. The Bible says God is a spirit, is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Are you familiar with that? The, this, these bodies are temporary. The spirit inside of us is eternal. But at birth, that spirit comes into this world in a corrupt state, a sin nature. Therefore, without regeneration, Without being born again by the Spirit of God, our spirits are destined to live, in, it's not really life, to exist in an eternal state of punishment known as hell. 
The new birth sets us free from that and gives us the precious promise of eternal life in Christ. We are all born in sin so that our spirit is corrupted and defiled by the sin nature. Even religious people like Nicodemus. Verse 7, Jesus continues, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. It means you should not be surprised. You should not be amazed. Don't be astonished. And as a man of the cloth, so to speak, Nick should have been able to comprehend this, Nicholas, Nicodemus. I like nicknames for my Bible characters. So in my notes it keeps calling him Nick. Do not marvel. Don't be amazed. Don't be astonished. You shouldn't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice Jesus says, you, what? Must. It's not optional. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born-againer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. It's not optional. It's essential for interest into God, entrance into God's eternal kingdom. But the good news is, it's not hard. God's already done the heavy lifting. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross. The torment, the punishment He endured was for us. By his stripes we're healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. You know the passage from Isaiah. You know the thing. When Joe Biden was trying to quote the... What was it, the, the declaration? What was he quoting? Huh? One nation under God, indivisible, all that. He could, and he could, you know, the thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm sorry. A little bit. I'm not really very sorry. But. <sighs> Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I, you're going to have to forgive me, but I've got to throw in another little jab here. The wind blows where it wishes, not where Joe Biden, Greta Thunberg, or John Kerry think it should. Okay? Man cannot control the movements or machinations of the wind or the Holy Spirit. You see? That's the analogy here. The wind blows where it wishes. Man cannot control the movement or machinations of the Holy Spirit. It blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. And we've certainly experienced that here in Albuquerque the last few months, haven't we? Had a lot of wind. And you can hear it. Acts 2, 1 and 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty, a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. This was the Holy Spirit coming upon those believers in Acts chapter 2. Really the beginning of the New Testament church. You can hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. Now we do have a lot of modern technology that they didn't have 2,000 years ago, and they're able to track 
wind patterns and so forth now, but still man cannot control the wind. It goes where it wants to, it comes from where it wants to, and that's like the Holy Spirit. Like the wind, the Spirit of God is unseen, but he is constantly moving in our world in his own mysterious ways. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. So we have a limited understanding of the things of God in this life that he's made known to us through his, the Holy Scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, whom he's sent to be our teacher, to be our guide. But we don't understand it all yet, and we certainly don't see it all yet. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. And so Jesus is trying to explain here to Nicodemus the unseen nature of the things of God, the Spirit of God, the Kingdom of God. Because as a Pharisee, he would have been among those who tended to look at what he saw in the material world and to base everything on that. Except that they did believe in the resurrection, so there were some good things about the Pharisees. Ecclesiastes 11.5 As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. So true. And that's how things like evolution came about and other false belief systems trying to explain our existence here on earth because God's ways are beyond our knowing and understanding. And it drives people crazy when they can't know something and understand something. So if they can't know it or understand it, they make up something else. You see how that works? So Charles Darwin, historically speaking, was originally a theology student. He got mad at God because of a personal tragedy in his life. And so he came up with a way to get back at God by creating an alternate theory of how man came into existence. And that's usually how these things work. These people who claim to not believe in God are actually mad at God. How can you be mad at somebody you don't believe in? Because deep down inside you do. You just don't like him. And so you try to get revenge on him. You can't get revenge on God. God says in his word, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Job 11.7 How uh, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? We know what the answers to that are. Isaiah 45.15 Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And so it requires a seeking after a choosing to believe, if you will, like we talked about earlier. And so Jesus says, just like the wind blows where it wishes, you can, you can hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So like the wind, though we cannot see the Spirit, as we draw near to God and profess our faith, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our hearts and minds, indeed, our very spirits become His habitation. We talked about this last week, that we are all, as born-again, Spirit-filled believers, temples of the Holy Spirit. 
We become the temple of God. How many of you can say here this morning that when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that's essentially how you become born again, that you felt a change within? A lifting. Uh, the heavy burden of sin lifted from us. We can feel the very presence of God in our lives, and we, as well as those around us, can observe the impact that the wind of the Spirit has had on our lives. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have experienced that with somebody saying, wow, you've changed. You're not the same. You're different. They don't always like to change, but they see it. Like the wind, you feel the impact of the Spirit of God in your life. The freedom, the joy, the peace. And it's observable by yourself and those around you. Like the wind. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus here. We don't see the wind. We don't see the hurricanes. Or we think we do. Wow, I see a big tornado. No, what you see are the effects these things have upon our material world. In the same way, we see the impact of God's Spirit on and in the lives of those who are born again through spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? But that's good. Rather than rejecting out of hand Jesus' statement regarding new birth and the work of the Spirit, he could have said, You know what? You're a raving lunatic, Jesus. I'm out of here. No. He says, How can these things be? I still don't understand it. But he's not understanding or comprehending, but he sincerely wants to know how this whole thing works. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Nic Nicodemus, how can you be a spiritual leader to the children of Israel if you have no understanding of spiritual things? Matthew 15, 10 through 14. Jesus, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. And this is with regard to the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus and his disciples because they weren't practicing, at least not on a regular basis apparently, the ceremonial washing of their hands before a meal. It wasn't just a hygiene thing like it is for us. It was religious to them. And we talked about how rigid, strict the Pharisees were. So when he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. In other words, eating with dirty hands or unceremonially cleansed hands. But what comes out of the mouth, hello, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Makes me feel better. <laughs> but he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. He's talking about the phony, fake religious people who don't really know him, don't really have a relationship with him like the majority of the Pharisees. Every plant which my Heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. 
They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Nicodemus was seeking the truth, but his eyes were not yet opened. Let's stand. More next week on this meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. Where's my worship team? Did, did we miss the rapture? Or? or maybe they were part of the alien rapture. Where they have to go be reprogrammed. All right. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, let's bow our heads. If anyone has a prayer request, please raise your hand. All over this room. That's good because God likes to hear from us. Father, you see each hand. You know each person. You know each heart. You know what's on their hearts and their minds. We lift up these requests to you now. If it's for health, Lord, if there's a health situation, a disease, an affliction, an injury, however small or however large, Lord, we know that nothing's too difficult for you. And nothing's too insignificant, Lord. Even if we stub our toe, you care. You care about everything that happens to us, every part of who we are. And so we lift up these requests for health, for strength, for healing. Lord, in Jesus' name, please touch those who may be afflicted with arthritis or cancer. Lord, lung problems, whatever it might be, Father. Liver, kidney, lungs. Lord, you've created us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And most of the time, everything works pretty well. But we know that we live in bodies that are cursed, that are destined to die. But Lord, we pray that you would bless us with as much health and strength as possible along the way so we can continue to do what we have to do to take care of our families, to provide for our families, to serve you in the body of Christ. And so Lord, we do commit and dedicate ourselves to you, body, soul, and spirit, for your sanctification, for being set apart for your holy purposes and we pray God in Jesus name for healing which we will give you the praise and the glory and the honor for and we will praise you and give you glory and honor whether you heal us or not yes. but we thank you that you do often my friend Brian was just talking to me last night about a healing that took place way early in his life and we thank you Lord for every single time that you have healed us and we do pray for those calling on you today for physical healing as well as mental and emotional healing. Father, we know those can be just as difficult and troubling and debilitating mental and emotional issues. We pray for deliverance from anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. And Lord, we need forgiveness for any bitterness, jealousy, envy that we're harboring in our hearts. We ask you to forgive us. And heal us because we know that those things are damaging to us. They're like a cancer. Paul said, let no root of bitterness grow up within you and defile many. Lord, so forgive us, please. We know that part of that process, James said, that we're to confess our sins one to another that we might be healed. Lord, we confess them before you now and we pray for wisdom regarding where, when, and how we should perhaps confess those things to someone else. A close friend a good brother or sister in Christ, someone that we can trust, that we have a relationship, we have confidence, that we can share those innermost thoughts and feelings and hurts 
But we ask you to deliver us, Lord. Please set us free that we might not go through life angry and bitter and resentful. We repent. We ask your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for those uh, with relationship issues, marriages that are struggling, marriages that perhaps are already broken, but Lord, we know nothing is impossible for you. You can heal them. You can restore them. And Lord, for those in that situation, it's really important, Father, that we focus on being the person, the husband or wife that you've called us to be, the mother or father you've called us to be, to be right with you, to do that which is right in your eyes, in your sight, and we know that then you will work on our behalf. So we pray for healing of friendships, any, any type of relationship that's been damaged or broken, Lord. Help us as much as possible to be peacemakers and to be instruments of your reconciliation and your restoration and your healing. And then finally, God, we pray for those with financial difficulties. We are living in difficult times, but we know that you're our provider, Jehovah Jireh. Lord, we look to you, we trust you, we put our hope and our faith in you, and we ask for wisdom. Give us the ability to properly and wisely manage our resources. And Lord, when they're in short supply, we pray that you would um, come in like a flood and bridge the gap, provide for our needs, and help us to be able to distinguish needs from wants. And Lord, to use our resources wisely for things that count for eternity. We thank you and we praise you for all these things. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the spirit that lives within us, the, the capacity and the ability that you've given us to be born again, to have a second birth, a spiritual birth that will then take us into eternity as part of your eternal kingdom. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Mm -hmm.